Today I'll be speaking with Jerry Coyne. Jerry is a biologist at the University of Chicago, and he's written over a hundred scientific papers and several books, the most recent of which is Faith versus Fact, Why Science and Religion Are Incompatible, and I highly recommend that you pick it up. Jerry is one of the more frequent and articulate commentators on the clash between scientific and religious ways of thinking, and he's been a, a colleague and comrade and friend in this area for several years. I should probably apologize for the audio here. We did this interview remotely, and the recording of Jerry's voice especially leaves something to be desired. But you can hear the clarity of his thinking nonetheless. So without further ado, I bring you Jerry Coyne. Hey, Jerry, how you doing? Fine, yourself? I'm good, I'm good. Well, thank you for taking the time to do this. It's, it's, uh, you are the first proper interview on my podcast, which... Oh, really? Uh, yeah, yeah, which makes me <laughs> okay, happy. Okay, well, I'm honored. <laughs> nice. Well, um, I, I was trying to remember where we met. Did we? Was that in, in Mexico at the uh, Ciudad de las Ideas conference? Yeah, that's the first time I met you. It might have been the first time I met Dan, and it was certainly the first time I met Hitch. Yeah, and the last time as well. That, that was that was a good conference. It was a it was a surprisingly well organized one. Yeah, unfortunately, I had to miss the big debate with you guys. Uh, that was supposed to be nice, but uh, had to get back to catch my flight. So, if you missed the debate, you missed uh, Nassim Taleb's performance, where he gave voice to one of the most bizarre eruptions of anti-science gibberish I can ever recall hearing. Uh, that's on YouTube for for any interested person yeah, to listen to. Yeah, I didn't to. realize that was on YouTube. I'll have to go back and look at it. Uh, it was amazing. He he insinuated himself into this debate that was already too crowded, with like three or four people on each side. And he insisted that he had something of uh, compelling interest to all of humanity to say. And then he got up there and just laid down a word salad of a sort that... Well, I guess you're used to word salads in these kinds yeah, of debates. Yeah. I also remember from that conference, the it was the first time I witnessed just how different a human organism Christopher Hitchens was than myself. Uh, I don't know if you recall, but it was like a three-hour drive to Mexico City from where the conference was because the traffic was so brutal at, at every hour of the night. Yes. And he had to go to D.C. Uh, the next day. So he was flying in the morning. He had like a 6 a.m. flight from uh, Mexico City, and he had an event that night in D.C. And I met him at the bar at midnight where he was having a scotch and a, and a club sandwich, and he was not planning to sleep. <laughs> he was just going to get in the car, get, to the, get on the plane, go to D.C. and, and perform again that night uh, he had amazing stamina that guy especially given the way he abused his body i'm glad i got to meet him once before he died so. yeah yeah well um i want to get into the topic of your your new book but i just a couple of questions about how you got in a position to write it but first how did you how did you get into science and and, and what is your current focus in biology well, getting into science you know people have asked me that and that's not clear um if i were to name something i suppose i'd say it was my parents because my dad was an animal lover so from the very first i can remember he was always dragging us to zoos and things and then when i was a kid they bought me all kinds of science books you know the golden book of geology the golden book of, of dinosaurs that whole series and um i didn't really choose science as i guess a profession until i went to college and i took a uh, an introductory biology course that was taught by an evolutionary biologist a guy named um, Jack Brooks at William and Mary. He was extremely charismatic, and that's all it takes, basically, to you know, for the tipping point. Um, from that point on, I was hooked on evolution, and 
you know, studied it throughout college and then went to graduate school. So that's how I became a scientist. My area of research has been pretty much through my career with a few digressions, the origin of species, that is how one lineage can branch into two or more lineages. What are the genetic changes that accompany the origin of species that make these different lineages reproductively separated from one another? And are there any generalities or regularities in this process that we can study? And which genes are involved in that process? So I was basically taking up the question that Darwin started with his book, The Origin of Species, which he, of course, neglected to answer. He didn't say anything about the origin of species. He talked about how a single species would evolve. And that question lay pretty much fallow until about the 1930s and 40s, and then um, became fallow again. And I was interested in it, so I started working on it when I went to uh, graduate school. And and you're working in Drosophila, or what, what are you, what animals? Yeah, and fruit flies. Uh, if you want to study the genetics of how species form, genetics um, defined in a hard way, then that means doing crosses, not just sequencing DNA, which we couldn't do anyway when I started it. So if you want to, for example, find out where and how many genes distinguish two closely related species for a character like, you know, the sperm motility or behavioral isolation, mating discrimination, or any of their traits, like how they look different or anything. There's no way around that, even in these days of DNA sequencing, except to cross them. And fortunately, in fruit flies, many closely related species can be crossed under lab conditions. And they have a generation time of about 10 days to two weeks. So you can go through 30 generations of genetic manipulations in a year, which makes them ideal for this kind of study. Right. Of course, you can't do that with any other organism, except maybe, um, you know, flatworms or any or something. But um, at least for studying flies, I've gotten a good deal out of that system. Yeah. And so now you also spend a lot of time policing the boundary of science and non-science and you, you've been a very vocal critic of religious dogmatism and you know a real ally of mine on that front and you have a, a blog uh, why evolution is true that you do most of that writing on and now you have a couple of books the first um, why evolution is true where you you go into the details of answering that question and your new one faith versus fact why science and religion are incompatible deals with the collision between science and religion very directly and very usefully. It's a book I highly recommend people read. What percentage of your time now are you allocating toward doing primary science, and what percent is this more public communication of science slash defense of, of science against unreason? Well, I'm sort of at the tail end of my scientific career. I turned 65, and I'm actually going to retire within a year. So the amount of new research I'm doing is zero, but I'm cleaning up what I have done, which means writing the final papers that I got on my last grants and everything. Um, so right now, I'm, and I've been half-time for about a year and a half. So right now, I'm segueing from science into you know, more public kind of journalism, writing, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So right now, you know, I'd spent, I probably spent about 80% of my time doing the latter and 20% of it doing straight science because that just consists of writing up the research that I um, haven't finished right. writing up yet. So. Right. Well, the thing you focus on in the, in the new book is this phenomenon that uh, we've come to call accommodationism. Can you explain what that is? And, and do you know, did, did you... Did you coin this word? Where did this word come from? Coin is a good, <laughs> good verb for that. Um, I 
think I did, but I'm not sure. You know, it's one of those words that I use a lot, and I think people got from me, but I'm not sure I'm the originator of it. So since I don't know that, I'm not going to claim credit for that neologism. But, you know, it is a good one, and people have picked it up. In terms of what it means, it's a view that is held by both believers, agnostics, and, you know, atheists themselves sometimes, that there is no inherent conflict or any kind of conflict between science and religion. And there are various ways that you can um, couch that compatibility thing, but that's basically the view, that there is no conflict between the two areas. And was the first clear and clearly wrongheaded expression of this uh, Stephen Jay Gould's non-overlapping magisteria? Where do we get this notion of, of a fundamental compatibility? Yeah, actually, he's the guy that made it famous, but I think I have actually the book here. I can find the first expression of it in 1925 by Alfred North Whitehead. Um, I just have a quote from him here that says that, remember the widely different aspects of events which are dealt with in science and religion, respectively. Science is concerned with the general conditions which are observed to regulate physical phenomena, whereas religion is wholly wrapped up in the contemplation of moral and aesthetic values. On the one side, there is the law of gravitation, and on the other, the contemplation of the beauty of holiness. What one side sees, the other misses, and vice versa. So that's Whitehead in 1925, mm. and just been by 74 years, um, saying basically the same thing, that it's the separate magisteria view. Gould, of course, made the view famous because he was a famous scientist. The public lapped up his works. And he wrote a whole book on this, what he calls the NOMA, or non-overlapping magisteria hypothesis. Plus, everybody loved the idea, you know, why can't we all get along? That's a very popular idea. You can't be wrong if you say something like that. And, um, you know, it, it was a famous book. But, you know, you see this kind of view of non-overlapping magisteria scattered throughout the discussion of science and religion, you know, throughout the uh, 20th century. Just to be clear about what non-overlapping magisteria are, it's, it's a, the idea is that there are these two domains of expertise that are separate, and one is the purview of religion, the other is the purview of science, and they they don't overlap. So in principle, there can be no conflict between science and religion. That's correct, because I mean, it's like a Venn diagram with two circles that don't intersect, so there's no overlap. Yeah. I mean, I think Gould was badly wrong about that, but that was his thesis. One sphere, just to be clear, is the domain of investigating what's real in the universe, and the other domain, Gould said, was the bailiwick of meaning, morals, and values, which is the religious circle. Yeah, this is, I, I just can never understand why... This idea has a half-life of more than like 90 seconds among smart people. It's like, because clearly, clearly every religion is making claims about certain invisible things and certain ultimate fates really existing for people and souls and various corners of the cosmos. There are invisible spirits, there are souls, there are gods, there's a hell you can go to or successfully avoid. These are all claims about the way the universe is and how someone like Gould could think they don't trespass on the terrain of science. I can't even begin to see how this confusion is arising in someone like him. I think this book is a bit disingenuous. I knew Steve. He was on my thesis committee, and he was a diehard atheist, if there ever was one. I don't know if this book was like a psychological burp in him or that it was a, a gambit to gain popularity with the public. I, I just find it hard to believe knowing Steve. I mean, he's 
you know, passed on now that he would really believe this. <laughs> but, you know, when faced with the kind of argument you made, that which I agree with 100%, that almost all religions, there may be a few outliers, make statements about what is real in the universe, Gould would claim that that's not real religion. <laughs> so, for example, creationism, which is a staple of Christianity in the United States and is accepted by f about 43% of all Americans, young earth creationism, is a tenet of Protestantism, of many Protestants. And that's a claim about the real world. I mean, Genesis talks about basically how old the earth is, if you calculate it back. It talks about everything being formed at once. It makes statements about Noah's flood. All of these things are not only scientific statements, but they're scientifically checkable. So, you know, what Gould did when faced with that is he said, well, that's not real science. I mean, sorry, that's not real religion. That's, um, I don't even remember what he calls it. I talk about it in my book. But he finessed the problem by just defining a way as not religious, those statements that religion makes about reality. And so, of course, you know, tautologically he was correct, but it doesn't make sense. And theologians have uh, glommed on to this evasive maneuver he made. Now, that, you know, in some circles, it's still popular to deny that religion does not make statements about reality. There was an article by Tanya Lurman in last Sunday's New York Times referring to another paper by, a, uh, I think, a Belgian philosopher who claims that religious statements of fact aren't the same as the kind of fact that we think of when we say there's a table here or, you know, the earth is 10,000 years old. They're what he calls statements of religious credence. They don't have the same factual or epistemic content as, as factual statements. So there's a whole lot of so-called sophisticated religious people who take a different tack from Gould and claim that religion is not about factual statements at all. And, you know, I would take issue with that, and I assume you would too. So, you know, they too would sign on with Noma. But most theologians have rejected Steve's statement because just on this, the religious side, because they recognize that their own faith makes claims about reality. To take Christianity as the example, if you think that Jesus really existed, you're making a claim about a historical person. So, and if you think that he really survived his death and in some sense persists and can hear your prayers and that he may be coming back to earth to raise the dead in turn, you're making claims about biology, you're making claims about the hu human survival of death, you're making claims about telepathic powers of a now invisible carpenter, you're making very likely claims about human flight without the aid of technology. Yep. I mean, it's, it's, it's very frustrating. This is, a, as you, I think, suggested, also related to the idea that many people have that religious beliefs don't actually lead to any significant human behavior in this world because religious beliefs are in principle vacuous and they're only about solidarity and community and finding this sort of nebulous meaning in life, they don't actually lead to concrete behaviors that we need to worry about. So jihadism is not the result of what any specific Muslims believe. It's politics, it's economics. And so religious belief is not worth worrying about. It's an attitude that many of our fellow atheists hold, and that therefore they have, they see no reason to oppose people's religious certainties, even when they're seeming to encroach in the public sphere and in the kinds of public policies that uh, members of our own government want to enact. They continually doubt that religion is at the bottom of 
those policies, whether it's opposition to gay marriage or embryonic stem cell research or whatever it is in, in the context of the United States. And I find it incredibly frustrating to interact with this kind of denialism, which is the other side of, of what you're calling accommodationism. Yeah, it's interesting. There's actually two claims there. The first one is that religion does not make any meaningful statements about reality. And the second claim, which can be separate from that, is that religious beliefs don't lead to behavior. I mean, those things don't, aren't necessarily connected with one another. But it would be an interesting exercise to see if those people who claim that religious beliefs don't have epistemic content are the same people who deny that, you know, for example, belief in the Quran leads to suicide bombing. I'm sure, I think somebody like Karen Armstrong would instantiate both of those views. Yeah, She has yeah. this apophatic view of religion that you can't say anything about God. And of course, she goes around and claims that everything that bad that religious people do is not based on religion themselves. So, you yeah. know. Well, Scott Atran, the, the uh, anthropologist, has linked those two ideas very explicitly in the way he talks about Islam, that these beliefs, religious beliefs, are uh, in principle vacuous. They have no propositional content about the world that could motivate anybody to do anything differently, and therefore nobody does anything differently on their basis, i.e. nobody blows himself up for that reason. Yeah, I was going to say, I think we had something like a bit of this conversation when you were here in Chicago last, and I would like to ask those people, okay, what would it take to convince you that they really were motivated by religion? I mean, they're like theologians in a way that there's nothing you can tell them to disabuse them or no evidence whatsoever that would convince them that they're being motivated by religion because they can always think of a way that it's something else. So I'd like to ask them to write down a list of, okay, what would it take you to show that? I mean, I saw your... Um, interchange with Atron. I guess it was in 2006 I read that yesterday, and I was simply astounded that he could say the things he did about, you know. I mean, and then you showed a video of a Muslim preacher reciting from the Quran, and you said it was very moving. And I looked at that, and it was. The words were beautiful. The musicality was great. And he was talking about hellfire and how, you know, yeah. and people were weeping. You know, it's hard to believe yeah, that, yeah. that any kind of re emotional reaction like that could not be caused by belief in the propositions that the preacher is actually laying out at the time. It wasn't the music that was making them cry. <laughs> it was the fact right, that they were right. part of this great movement of belief. So I think to anybody who's not blinkered by some kind of accommodationist desires, it's palpably obvious that so much behavior is motivated by religious belief. I mean, look at creationists. If they don't really believe in the tenets of Genesis, why are they trying to force them to be taught to everybody in schools? Why are they opposing evolution if it's just some kind of, you know, metaphor that they see in Genesis? I don't think that's the case. I think they really do believe that the words of Genesis are true, and that's borne out by polls that show that a substantial proportion of Americans take the Bible as literal truth. Yeah, and you, and you made in that conversation in Chicago the very useful observation, which I have now reiterated many times, which is this is a double standard that people like Atran and Armstrong and, and everyone else has not copped to, because they never ask that we justify uh, or that we doubt the political or economic rationales put forward for human behavior. Yep. So for instance, when someone like a, a member of the KKK says, I'm doing all this stuff because I hate black people. You know, I'm really a racist, and this is my core political ideology. 
nobody doubts that racist hatred of black people is really motivating this person. We would never try to look for an underlying motive there that negates the claim that he is, in fact, really racist. But when we have someone expressing their religious opinions or the religious expectations, the idea that they're going to get into paradise behaving a certain way, or the idea that, that homosexuality is anathema to God, the accommodationists insist upon finding some layer below that, which is the true reason why a person is behaving as he is. Yeah, this is a good example of confirmation bias. I mean, theologians behave the same way. You know, they'll accept evidence that substantiates their religious beliefs, but anything that goes against it, they, you know, they reject or work it into their, you know, worldview somehow. Um, these accommodationists in terms of politics and religion are exactly the same way. And I can't help but believe that this is just one more symptom of the unwarranted respect that people have for religion and faith. They just cannot bring themselves to claim that religion could make yeah, anybody yeah. do anything bad. I mean, if people like us can admit that religion can sometimes make people do good, I don't see why they can't admit the same thing on their side. Yeah, and, and let's uh, put a finer point on that, because I, I freely admit that religion can cause people to do extraordinary things which are good and many of which could be unthinkable, but for... Uh, that specific person's religious beliefs. I mean, it's, it's certainly possible that there are people who would only go to Africa to aid in a famine because of what they believe about Jesus and about the importance of spreading his word, and that those same people couldn't find a truly rational, secular motive to behave that way. I mean, it's not to say that, that rational, secular motives don't exist, but for any one person— it's quite possible that he's not going to get out of bed in the morning and do good but for believing certain irrational things about God or about his fate after death. That's totally possible, and there seems no reason to deny that. Yeah, that's another example of the double standard. I mean, if we can admit that religion is such a psychological motivator that it will drive missionaries to places that are, well, God-forsaken in both respects— and sacrifice basically their well-being and their lives to do this kind of stuff. Why do they deny that it could also motivate people to do things that we consider bad, but they consider good for their religion? I don't really understand the whole thing, except that the people that usually do that show this overweening respect for faith. Yeah. Now, so what do you make of someone like Francis Collins? Because obviously one argument that we hear for the compatibility between science and religion is essentially an existence proof in the person of uh, of someone like Francis Collins. Because here you have a scientist who is a working scientist who is, in fact, in Collins's case, an evangelical Christian. So there it is, proof that science and religion are compatible. And he says that they're not only compatible, but, but mutually supportive. What do you make of the the, the yeah. riddle of his of his mind? Well, there's two claims there. The first one is compatibility. The second is mutual support. Um, I would take the second one first and say that that's not true at all. If you look at what science does to religion, it doesn't support it because it never substantiates the claims of religion. The history of science's incursion into religion is simply to whittle away its truth claims to you know almost nothing. So. If you, I don't know how anybody can claim that science supports religion these days, except maybe for the claim that Collins makes that I'll talk about in a minute. In terms of religion helping science, um, it doesn't do anything. As Laplace said, you know, we do not need that hypothesis anymore. Collins, when he enters his laboratory, 
to do work or I presume supervise his sequencers, does, leaves God at the door. You don't get anywhere in science by assuming that there's any kind of divine or numinous reality. And about the claim that science and religion are compatible because one person can do both or that there's a lot of religious people who are friendly to science or a lot of religious scientists, which and all of that is true. To me, that just shows a form of compartmentalization rather than compatibility, that people can have two divergent worldviews in their head at the same time and, and somehow manage to live as a unified person in that way. So I deal with this and these other specious claims of uh, compatibility in the book. But my response to Collins would be, well, Catholicism and pedophilia are compatible because there's a fair number of Catholic priests who are pedophiles. <laughs> And they don't think there's anything wrong with that. Well, that's compartmentalization. That's not compatibility. So showing that one person instantiates two sort of conflicting views is not, for me, an argument in compatibility. Or if you want to be a little less invidious, you could say science and creationism are compatible. Because after all, there are some scientists who are creationists. Mm -hmm. Not a lot, but there are some. You know, <laughs> So to me, that's an argument for compartmentalization and not compatibility. I mean, my view is not that you can hold both views at the same time as an example of compatibility, but that the two spheres approach their ways of finding truth in completely different manners. And that's what I define as compatibility, how you seek and find out what's real in the universe. Right. Well, say, say more about that. So what really is the conflict between religion and science as methodologies and ways of arriving at truth claims? Well... I have it all summed up in this aphorism I like to use, which is that in science, faith is a vice, and in religion, it's a virtue. It basically comes down to faith. I mean, that's why I call my book Faith Versus Fact. It's about religion and science, but religion is basically the most widespread instantiation of faith, which is belief without evidence sufficient to convince any reasonable person. And science is the most exquisite example of fact, which is you know, how to find out what's real in the universe. Let me say a, a few words about why we even talk about science and religion. We don't talk about why religion and sports are compatible or why religion and business are compatible. I mean, that's not a question that people worry mm -hmm. about, but they worry about religion and science being compatible. Now, why is that? It is because both of those areas, as we've just discussed, make claims about reality. And any theologian worth his or her salt is going to admit that. You mentioned some of those realities, you know, Jesus, the resurrection, the afterlife, hell, and things like that. So in a way, religion is a science in that it makes claims about reality and it has hypotheses. But it's a pseudoscience because when its way of finding out what's real, its way of substantiating its claims, is based on faith, authority, dogma. It's not the same method that scientists use when they test their claims. So the basic conflict is when you make a claim about what's real, how do you find out whether that claim is true or not? Science has its whole toolkit of methods, replication, peer review, all kinds of you know appeal to nature, testability. And then religion has a whole set of its toolkit, which is based on, you know, authorities, consulting ancient scriptures, personal revelation, etc. And they're basically incompatible ways. I mean, science does find out stuff, and religion doesn't. As far as I can see, theology has not progressed in understanding the nature of the divine, or even if there is a divine, in the past two millennia. 
So that's the basic incompatibility. It's they, they're competing because they make statements about reality, but only one of those branches, science, has a way to find out whether what you say is true. It also seems to me that only science uh, really focuses on the problem of confirmation bias and wishful thinking and motivated reasoning and all of the other judgment errors we make when we are committed to certain things being true while investigating whether or not they are. It's only a science where you really see the necessity of getting your agenda out of the way uh, and testing to see whether you have fooled yourself. It's Richard Feynman's famous line that science is the art of, of not fooling yourself, and you have to remember that you're the, the easiest person, person to fool. To fool, right. I love that, that statement. I mean, that encapsulates the nature of the scientific enterprise better than any description of science. I mean, science is basically a set of tools that have been honed by experience to find out what's real. And part of it is you have to brutally eliminate the desire or any kind of manipulation which would help you find what you want to be true or what you believe to be true or what you find emotionally satisfying. Religion, on the other hand, is, I mean, it's precisely the opposite. It's set up to help you fool yourself, to give you confirmation bias. If and there's anything that goes against your religion, you somehow either turn it into a metaphor, so it's still there to buttress your religion in some sense, or you just reject the fact, period. So that's why I call religion a pseudoscience. I mean, in effect, religious people are like, they're not going to like hearing this, but they're like people who claim they were abducted by UFOs or people who believe in ESP or telekinesis or conspiracy theorists. They have this view which they find emotionally satisfying. It is a hypothesis about reality, but when it's disconfirmed, they have all these tools that they use to reject that disconfirmation. It's the exact opposite of science. So in many ways, theologians behave exactly like UFOlogists behave. The, the ways that they reject information that they don't like are very similar. The flip side of that is they use the consoling experience they get from believing certain things as evidence of the truth of those propositions. There's this lack of attention to the difference between believing something because you have good reasons to believe it and believing it because of the way it's being true would make you feel. Yeah, that's the whole um, revelation bit. And I guess that's the subject of, uh, you know, the varieties of religious ex experience. William James's great book that you know, the, the religious experience is a personal experience. You've had a revelation and it's made you feel good. So. Right. Well, it's not to say that I mean, you can have personal experiences that would be evidence of something. They don't equip you to say anything about the universe at large, but you can have a personal experience of you know, a radical change in your life, which tells you that something has happened, yes. whether uh, meditating or praying or fasting or whatever precipitated it, you, the utility of that practice may then be easily demonstrated by just noticing changes in your experience. So it's not that experience is of, of no value in considering you know, what is worth paying attention to and how you want to live. It's just that the idea that among the reasons for believing something to be true is how that truth makes you feel, that is something which science ruthlessly and quite appropriately dissects out of the truth-gathering enterprise. True. Whereas religion makes a virtue of that very delusional mechanism where I'm seeing the, the universe the way I'm seeing it because I want it to be that way. I wouldn't want to live in a universe where there was no God. 
I wouldn't want to live in a universe where I'm not going to be reunited with my loved ones in an afterlife. And that makes sense to people. In terms of the public communication of science, it seems to me that that fundamental reasoning error is something that has to be illuminated again and again. Only religion gets to play by those rules. And this then migrates into the rest of culture where we have people you know, opposing gay marriage. Why? Because their faith tells them that marriage is between a man and a woman, and that's the only argument they ever feel required to give. And this is a point I made in, in The End of Faith. If your neighbor said he believed he had a diamond in his backyard that was the size of a refrigerator and he spends every Sunday digging for it, you would never accept as a a sane reason for this behavior that this gives his life meaning or that he he wouldn't want to live in a universe where there wasn't a diamond in his backyard the size of a refrigerator. I just don't understand that attitude. It's not so hard to see that people can go wrong when they take to be true what they want to be true. I mean, we face this every day, but it's only religion where we actually have respect for that belief <laughs> as opposed yeah. to thinking that it's nuts. I personally don't get it, and I guess a lot of people don't, but there's something about religion, and I don't know what it is, that leads to this double standard on so many levels. And this last chapter of my book is about sort of this. I mean, what's the harm in thinking that science and religion are compatible, or that faith and reason are compatible. It's because faith leads you into alleys where it's not necessarily good for society because religion is wedded to a code of conduct as well as a system of personal beliefs. And that code of conduct plays out in the public sphere with laws against gay marriage, the sort of invidious behavior of the Catholic Church towards AIDS. Also, you know, I call that horizontal pollution and there's vertical pollution whereby everybody thinks they have the right to indoctrinate the kids, their own kids, into their own personal truths about the universe. So it never stops. So. One other problem you and I have run into is we meet people who deny that Islam plays any role in manufacturing the phenomenon of jihadism and Islamic terrorism. And most frustratingly, we see someone like Ayan Hirsi Ali treated terribly by people on the political left mm -hmm. and attacked by liberal, quote, feminists, uh, and not recognized to be the feminist icon she really should be championed mm -hmm. as. And so I, I, you and I both reacted to some of the derision she received when she published her new book, Heretic. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I just wanted to get your, your thoughts on that phenomenon. Why, why is someone like Ayan not seen to be a true champion of uh, the emancipation of, of women in the development? Um, that is a puzzling problem. I mean, one would think that she would be, given her horrible background, her mistreatment by Muslims, the fact that she's a woman of color, the fact that she's a woman, um, that she would be that feminist icon, and yet she's vilified by the left. Um, I think it's the ultimate reason. They'll use a lot of other reasons. I mean, they have excuses. We'll go into this in a minute. It's because she's going after Islam, and Islam is off limits these days to the left. It's okay to make fun of the Jews. What's the uh, institute? Oh, Amnesty International. Sorry, they just mm -hmm. uh, they just turned down a resolution to condemn anti-Semitic acts in Great Britain. It was they just had their international meeting. They voted every resolution up except for the one that said we condemn anti-semitism in great britain we should investigate the problem that was voted down by amnesty international you know if that had been muslims wow. that would i mean there would have been no problem that act would have sailed through it's basically it's the kind of world now where it's okay 
to be anti-Semitic in, in the left, at least for many people, but not to be anti-Muslim because, and, and you know this as well as I do, Sam, Muslims are perceived as oppressed people. I am here CLE because she is so vociferous in criticizing Islam, and rightfully so, I think, has to be silenced. And they'll use any excuse to do that. I mean, there's these nominal excuses, like the statement she made in her speech at the American Atheist Convention, that American gays, the worst that can happen to them is they can't buy a cake, whereas, mm -hmm. you know, under Islam, gays get killed. But she said a lot more than that. They pick out these sound bites and use them against her. On my website, she's been criticized for being married to a conservative. <laughs> I don't understand right. what that has to do with her views. She worked for a conservative think tank. I don't think she does anymore, but that was the only group that would hire her. <laughs> she talks about that in one of her books. So once they've decided to demonize her, and I think it's because she's going after Islam, ultimately, then they can find any number of excuses why this woman should be reviled and mocked and stuff. But ultimately, I think Islam, and you know this as well as I do, is sort of off limits now as a subject of criticism for the left. And it's because we have this tension between our historical hatred of oppression, and yet we see in a group that is considered oppressed trying to remove the enlightenment values that the left also stands for. So that seems to be getting resolved in favor of respect for Islam. It's fascinating which wins the tug of war there, because it is true that a respect for religion is trumping a concern for the human rights of women and gays and intellectuals and free thinkers throughout the world. This is true even among irreligious people. I mean, the, another data point for me is the brain of Nicholas Kristof, the New York Times columnist, who mm -hmm. his whole thing is a concern for the rights of women or ostensibly his whole thing is that. And yet uh, when he turns the his moral genius upon Ayan Hirsi Ali, he takes the wrong side of every issue. He actually denigrates her as, as a bigot. It really is its just lacerating to see. Fortunately, there are some what I would call right-thinking people that, you know, we're not alone. No. <laughs> That's for yeah. sure. I mean, most of the people that read my website um, know that Enlightenment values should trump respect for a religion that damns those values. And you can always ask these people, well, you know, if you really think that Islam is such a great system of values, would you prefer to live in America or in Saudi Arabia or in Yemen? <laughs> and especially if you're a woman. I mean, I don't think there's any question about which way those people would answer. Yeah. And I find it all very puzzling. A few of those conversations I have said to my interlocutor, I actually think what you're saying about Islam and about multiculturalism is probably true. And so I'm just wondering what you think about my current plan to send my six-year-old daughter to live with a Taliban family for a couple of years to get to, you know to, to get a closer appreciation of their culture and it's, I mean no one with a straight face can say well that is you know responsible parenting on on my side and yet it's implicit in their view that there is nothing wrong with radical diversity of attitudes towards the treatment of women and girls and that's part of the whole left dilemma um, besides the oppressed it's a respect for multiculturalism. I mean, you weren't probably, I mean, I guess you were alive in the 60s, but you weren't you know, old enough to remember it. But I mean, multiculturalism was the watchword back then. Everybody was to be respected. We really gained from every culture. And I think that the bad parts of that view, because I'm a big view of multiculturalism in terms of music mm. and food and, you know, ways of looking at the world, but in terms of how you treat other people, especially women and minorities and how you run a society, 
I don't respect any culture that violates what I see as the right way to believe. And unfortunately, the multiculturalism is endemic in certain quarters of the left right now. And that goes along with the uh, hatred of oppression, which is expressed through respecting Islam. Well, so then, then what do you do with the counter argument that one occasionally hears that suggests that religious sensitivity should trump our concern for freedom of speech because our free exercise of our speech is causing so much pain uh, in the minds of religious demagogues. So when we cartoon about the Prophet Muhammad, this causes real harm in the Muslim community, even though it's even though it's harm that we can't understand. But nevertheless, you have people who feel wronged in a very deep sense. And why shouldn't that perception of being wronged trump our concern about free speech? Well, I think Hitchens, you know, in his famous fire, fire, fire speech, gave the, re the response to that, which is who decides, you know, what's offensive or not? I could be offended if somebody criticized Israel and called them anti-Semites. You know, I have a Jewish background. I'm not a believer. But, you know, I do get offended when I see people demonize Israel and leave Hamas alone. But I don't tell them to shut up. You know, once you get into the game of anybody whose feelings are hurt has a right to shut the other side up, then that leads to a situation in which everybody shuts up. Mm. And that's not good for society. I'm a big fan of untrammeled free speech. I think it should go. The only limits to free speech are the ones that the United States recognizes, I think, except on college campuses, which are that, you know, the only speech that should not be allowed is speech which is meant to incite violence and rioting on the spot. Mm -hmm. You know, that doesn't count making cartoons or anything like that. I'm in favor of allowing the Nazis to march through Skokie as they did. This whole wave of hurt feeling stuff, if we keep catering to that, it's a road to totalitarianism and censorship of everything because everybody can be offended. And once you learn the lesson that Islam is teaching us now, which is if you protest that you're personally offended when somebody says something you don't like, and maybe if you riot and kill, you will win. Other people are going to learn that lesson and do the same thing. And then what kind of society do we have then? America is still the land of the free in terms of species concerned, and I'd much prefer to keep things the way they are here. It's unfortunate, by the way, that college campuses seem to be the one place in this country where free speech is not greatly respected or practiced. Have you noticed a change in the culture on, on college campuses yourself? Oh, yes. Yes. Even here at the University of Chicago, i I put some of that up on my website. There was the the woman, I can't remember her name, who was worked with Charlie Hebdo and survived the massacre, came here and talked. And she, by the virtue of her talking, she offended a number of students, Muslim students, but also their sympathizers. And there were letters to the newspaper about how she shouldn't have been allowed to speak without somebody at least balancing her viewpoint. And that happens on my very own campus. I don't really write about it because there's no advantage to bucking the wave of student sentiment, but I, I do deplore this trend. And I think Chicago is a lot better than some places like Columbia or Stanford or um, even Berkeley these days, which is odd because Berkeley is where the free speech movement began. Yeah, but it's, it skews so far left that you, you would expect that this political correctness and uh, victimology would be... Uh peaking there I would yeah think. it's interesting that the, you know the left has really come full circle to the right that now you know 
people like you and I are in league in some ways with Bill O'Reilly and the Fox News commenters that condemn Islam. I hate that. I hate it, to, you know, to have to voice mm. some of the same sentiments. I mean, we do it for different reasons, I think, or I would hope. But it doesn't feel good to be in bed with people whose ideology is so completely opposed to yours. And that's what, you know, the, that's what these students are becoming, basically, is right-wingers. So. Yeah, yeah, very strange. Well, I see we're, we're coming up on an hour here, Jerry, and I, I want to respect your time. But I, I want to touch one mm -hmm. other issue, which I don't think uh, arises in the, in the current book, but it's an issue that you and I have both sounded off on, and much to the consternation of our mutual friend Dan Dennett, the issue of free will and whether mm -hmm. it makes sense scientifically or philosophically. To my continued surprise, the, the topic of free will is incredibly interesting to people, and in, in some cases unnerving to them when, when you begin to deny it, its existence. And it's, a, mm -hmm. it's something that really goes to the core of what they find relevant philosophically and scientifically. So I, tell me what you think about the notion of free will and or its uh, illusoriness in scientific terms. Well, that's a big question. I'm going to give a talk about this for the first time at the Imagine New Religion meetings in Vancouver in June. But um, first, you have to define free will if you want to talk about it. And my definition is basically that you have free will if your decisions are reflect anything more than the laws of physics that impinge on your mind as reflected through your genetic endowment and the environments you've experienced. In other words, I consider free will as a form of dualistic free will, and um, that I reject. So I'm a determinist. I basically believe, and I think you agree with me because I've read your book, that at any one point in time, it's completely the configuration of molecules in the universe, and in particular in your brain, that mandates what you do and that you could not have done anything other than you did. In other words, you couldn't, you don't have any choices. You know, you think you do and it looks like you do, but you don't really. And so I'm a determinist in that sense. And so are people like Dan Dennett, who nevertheless maintain there is free will. They do that by a semantic trick, by redefining what free will is. And you know those tricks. They're called compatibilists. Um, my view is that it's purely a semantic game that those people do it largely because for what you said that the notion of that we don't have free will that we're more or less wet robots is frightening to people <laughs> it's as frightening as the idea that we're going to die um, now we have to accept death because we see it all around us but it's harder mm -hmm. for people to accept that your brains are reflecting the laws of physics and so they reject it even steven weinberg at the um, naturalist meetings in stockbridge a couple years ago as a physicist, a determinist, and an atheist would not accept the fact that he could not have decided otherwise at any given moment. So if somebody as smart as that finds free will so appealing that they'll believe it regardless of all the evidence, then you can see how seductive a notion that really is. It's interesting. I, I now notice an unhappy analogy and uh, really symmetry between the compatibilism versus our version of determinism on the one hand and accommodationism, which we've been talking about for an hour, and the recognition that there is a zero-sum contest between faith and reason or religion and science. Right. Uh, there is a, they, they have a non-overlapping <laughs> magisteria idea That's right. I see, I see people like 
And let me say, because Dan's going to hear this probably. And so let me say, Dan, I love you and I'd hug you if you were here, but I don't agree with your views on compatibilism at all. I think that compatibilists who redefine free will to mean things like free will means doing something without a gun to your head <laughs> or without being locked in prison or mm. various or that humans are complex and so we have a lot more inputs that go into our outputs and that constitutes the redefinition of free will. It's a lot like theology first in several respects. First of all, because they redefine something, which is free will. In the case of theologians, it's God. So that it is palatable to people. It doesn't disturb them so much. They're immune to challenges. It's basically a semantic game. Um, they play the same game, and, and they do it like theologians because they think that society that doesn't believe in free will is going to run amok. I mean, people have said this explicitly. Dan said it. Uh, Eddie Namias, I'm not sure that's how you pronounce his name, has said it. Mm. Um, they think that if we realize that we're, our behaviors are really determined, we're going to become either nihilists or criminals. <laughs> It's odd that Dan says this because he criticizes belief and belief. It is the belief that religion is good for other people, if not for you. For the, on the same grounds that without believing in religion, people are going to run amok or they'll be nihilists. There's a sort of asymmetry there. It's not true, of course. I mean, I, I don't yeah. believe in free will, neither do you. And I think we're, we consider ourselves upstanding people. To me, the real important issue is not how you define free will. It's the issue of determinism which is the really important one. And every philosopher practically is a determinist. They know you could not behave other than you do at any one time. And yet some people will say, well, okay, that's still okay. We have a form of free will. I think as you say in your book, that we're, that's, you could construe that as saying we're puppets that love our strings. So there are some aspects of this that I find surprising when I've tried to unpack what I think are the moral implications of believing what we believe about determinism and therefore a, a person's ability to do other than, than what they do. And one thing is that I was considering you know, what a person's actions says about him. And uh, the, the example I used, I think this was in pushing back against Dan Dennett's uh, review of my book, Free Will. Uh, the, ex the example he gave uh, based on the work of the philosopher uh, Austin was of a missed putt. So you have someone, you have a golfer who's three feet from the hole and he tries to make his putt and he misses it. And the idea that he could not do otherwise because, you know, the universe was in precisely the configuration it was, mm -hmm. including every, you know, charge in his nervous system, that doesn't tell you anything of interest about what sort of golfer he is. What you want, and this is Dan's arguing uh, against me now, mm -hmm. what you want to know is just the, what he would do in general in that circumstance. That's that's how you understand his responsibility as a golfer and his, his likely future behavior. And that's fine uh, as far as I'm concerned. It's, it's true that you want to be able to generalize over many similar instances, though different in their microstructure, what a golfer is capable of. But... One thing I found interesting when I thought about this example is that when you take a golfer like Tiger Woods and he misses a three-foot putt, and given the, the reality of determinism, he would miss that putt a trillion times in a row. Mm -hmm. Whatever went wrong went wrong, and it would keep going wrong every time you rewind the universe to its exact state. It reveals that there are two things you, ha you seem to have to hold in mind at the same time. One is if anyone should have made that putt, it's Tiger Woods. I mean, he, is, he is more responsible 
in the conventional sense of responsibility mm-hmm. for missing that putt than any other golfer. Certainly, he's more responsible than I would be because I'm the kind of golfer who misses putts of that length all the time. So we, we expected him to, to make it. He missed it. And therefore, the opprobrium attached to that error should be highest in his case. So on the one hand, it's a greater failure for him because he really should have made it. But on the other, his missing it says the least about him because he's going to make that putt mm-hmm. 900 times in a row. It just I, I don't actually have yes. a, a strong conclusion based on that, but it seems kind of a paradox where the, the, the closer you get to this notion of responsibility in the micro instance of, of something happening, the, the more it seems undeserved. Yeah, especially there. And, and you got to wonder, I mean, what is the use of a program to somebody like Tiger Woods anyway, criticizing him because he missed a putt? Is that going to make him a better golfer? Or not, or is that just some instinctive feeling we have? I mean, all this, I mean, that argument to me just finesses the whole really important issue of moral responsibility. I mean, I don't think we have moral responsibility, but I think we have responsibility in a way that has to be adjudicated in society through a program and punishment. And this is what bothers me about all of these compatibilists and people who talk about free will because they're all determinists. And instead of concentrating on the really important issue for society, which is that we could not behave other than we do, and what are the implications of that for our system of punishment and reward, they play a semantic game. They engage in, well, you know, if maybe you know some Yiddish, they engage in pill pool, just endless debate about how these hypotheticals and examples about how we could construe free will or not, when the real issue is, what do we do about the criminal justice system? How do we deal with people that, transgress and are dangerous society, knowing now that that's right. the only thing they could right. have done. You know, it seems to me that philosopher, the real problem for society is the problem of determinism, which everybody accepts, but which people like compatibilists ignore. And I don't understand why they prefer to play these semantic games than deal with the one thing that we all agree on, which is that we could not do otherwise than what we do. Right. And, and just to be clear here, to, to say that we could not do otherwise is not to say that certain punishments don't deter certain classes of crime or that people can't learn to behave better than they than they have in the past or that, you know, that rehabilitation of certain criminals is possible or not or the cure of certain psychological problems is possible or not. I mean, these are it still matters what a person does or has done to him. And people can be discouraged successfully in many cases from misbehaving based on the kinds of laws we enact and the kinds of punishments uh, we lay down for them. But it's not, in any specific instance, uh, a person does exactly what he in fact does based on a concatenation of causes that precede his agency. His agency is just an expression of everything that has made him what he is in that moment. Uh, and we we recognize that when in, in specific cases where you, know, you find a brain tumor in, in, the, in the brain of some criminal that is in the right place to have influenced his behavior, then you think, well, as in the case of Charles Whitman, mm-hmm. this, is, this person was unlucky. Whereas you don't find a brain tumor, but you have, have the bewildering complexity of neurophysiology as yet ununderstood. That, that is, as I've argued elsewhere, just a, a glorified brain tumor in that case. It's just that, that is just as causal uh, in his case. But that doesn't mean that if people are responsive to certain punishments, 
we can't we can't use punishments to get them to respond in certain ways. If you can, if a behavior is voluntary, the the nature of its being voluntary is that it, it can be discouraged by punishments. If you're going to fine me a thousand dollars every time I stay, you know, five minutes too long at a parking meter, I will I will change my <laughs> relationship to parking meters. Yeah, I don't understand. I mean, this is the greatest misconception we have about determinism amongst the public is that. You can't, if determinism is true, you can't influence people's behavior by your behavior. I mean, that's probably false. And I always use the example, if you kick a dog every time it comes near you, it's going to stop coming near you. That, you know, I mean, the dog learns and people can learn. I actually say the same thing you do, that all criminals, in a sense, have brain tumors. But you can't say anything that will piss people off more than saying that. It's, if it has, people have a visceral reaction to that. Because their sense of agency is so great, they can't believe that they have the mental equivalent of a brain tumor if they do something wrong. But, you know, anybody that knows anything about the laws of physics knows that that is true. I mean, what I like about determinism and why I think people like Dan should be really talking about that rather than this playing the semantic game is because it puts the whole system of punishment rewards, especially criminal punishment and rewards on, on a scientific basis. I mean, now we can figure out, okay, how do we re rehabilitate somebody? What are the actions that we can take that will affect somebody in such a way that they aren't recidivists? <laughs> or how long does it, do we need to put somebody away before it will reform them? Um, so we, can, we still can have punishment for deterrence to sequester people from society and for reformation. But now we can investigate scientifically what are the best ways to intercede to do that? And we can do all that without saying these people are bad, with that they're morally responsible, which I don't think they are. The only thing we get rid of is what we don't want anyway, which is punishment out of vindictiveness, punishment yeah. for retribution. <laughs> and we don't. Nobody likes that. You know, no enlightened person likes that. And that's the one thing that automatically goes away when you start believing that free will is an illusion. Yeah. Well, obviously, this is a very uh deep and interesting area, which could probably merit its own hour, but... Um, yeah, you're not going to find many people that, that have the same views as we do about this, but I, mean, I think that they're the correct views because they stem directly from the laws of physics. I mean, that trumps everything else, and uh, the rest is commentary. <laughs> yeah, but in this case, I, I think it's, it's actually helpful that the ethical implications are at least in, in my view, benign uh, or, or positive. It's not that you suddenly uh, wind up in a world you don't want to live in when you follow these, the, the message of these physical truths to the, to the end. It's, uh, I think it's, it improves, as you say, our approach to fundamental ethical questions. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's conceivable that there are certain truths that we wouldn't want to know, things that are, if known, would reliably degrade our our well-being, our, our ability to get what we want out of life, but I, this certainly does not seem one of them, and that and that seems to be Dan's fear, at least in half his moods when he when he talks about this. Yeah, and there's one other thing which just struck me the other day when I was thinking about an old girlfriend I had and feeling regrets, and all of a sudden my intellect kicked in, and I said, well, you know, what happened happened. There was no choice about the matter. Why should I feel any regret? Why should I wish that things had turned out differently. They could not have turned out differently. So there are personal positive things too. And the fact is that our sense of agency is with us. I don't know how it evolved or why it's there, but it's not going to turn us into automatons to simply recognize that we're governed by the laws of physics because um, we do have this powerful illusion. 
And there are personal and societal benefits from at least addressing that illusion and seeing why it's an illusion, as you do in your book. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I just to go one epiphany further, uh, I don't actually have the illusion when I pay attention. I mean, for me, a moment of you know what I would call mindfulness mm-hmm. or meditation is synonymous with just noticing that everything arises on its own, including thoughts and intentions and preferences and fears. It's just, everything is just springing into view, whether it's a matter of just the phenomenology of my own mental life or things, perceptual experiences that I notice in the world or my perceptions of the world. Uh, so I just as I can't pick the next thing I hear because a, you know, the sound, the next sound simply impinges on my eardrum, I can't pick the next thing I think. Mm-hmm. The next thought just a- appears. So how is that a basis for free will? Yes, it, 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 it does. You know, I mean, that, that, that's not to deny that my thoughts follow a certain predictable pattern. I can tell you with some certainty that I won't start thinking in Korean you know, five minutes mm-hmm. from now because I don't understand a word of it. And the kinds of things I think about, like my wife or my book, that's all that's predictable. But in each, in the micro instance, the next thing that springs into view simply springs into view. And and that, the irony for me is that close attention to our mental life doesn't give us this basis for free will either. It's a, Most people think that there's a there's this very strong experience of free will that we, we just can't figure out how to square with reality. But if you look closely, I you know, I would argue you, the experience itself begins to break apart. And again, it's breaking apart is not harmful to you. Yeah, that's a level of spiritual advancement I haven't <laughs> attained yet. But I agree with you completely. <laughs> right. I'm just wondering if this is just a personal question. So do you live on two planes at once then? When you go into a restaurant and you order a steak, are you thinking about your thinking about ordering the steak when you do that? I mean, you're aware that this piece of meat floats into your mind and... Um, you know, wondering where it came from or because that seems a very different way of living than most people do. It's not so much. A, it's not a matter of thinking about the, the origins of, of impulses and intentions. It's just noticing mm-hmm. that that one thing arises or doesn't in a way that that I can't account for that. I, I being, you know, the conscious witness of of my experience can't account for mm-hmm. so it's, so on on certain occasions a desire for steak will will arise and on others it won't and I am motivated precisely to the to the degree that I am and no further to resist it or to indulge mm-hmm. it and it's just there's a fundamental mystery of why anything happens as it does in any instance but it is not a matter of adding more thinking to the experience it's just a matter mm-hmm. of of just noticing that in this instance, a desire for one food as opposed to another is arising, and uh, if you asked me why uh, that was the case, I, the honest answer is I don't know. In in every case. Well, no, I mean not in every case, right? <laughs> just to pursue this a bit further, because you could do, you could actually think about it when you say I want a steak, then you can think, well, why do I want a steak? Because I haven't had a steak in three days, you know, <laughs> or I feel protein deprived, you know. You can review the influences on your your mind and mm-hmm. um, make some plausible, in many cases, a, plaus- a plausible guess as to why you have been influenced the way you have. So I could have just seen a commercial for steak, and when I walked into the restaurant mm-hmm. an hour later, I can consciously recall that commercial and how much that made me want to eat steak then. 
and now I, now I want to eat it now. And so the, the, the causality mm-hmm. seems explicit. But what I, what I still can't get behind or uh, understand is, mm-hmm. you know, wh- why did the commercial have that effect on me in this case and not in another case? You know why, and and yes. and why did it have the effect that right, it precisely, yeah, it, it precisely to that degree, and and or why didn't it it have the opposite effect where I thought, oh God, haven't I eaten enough steak? My ethics are more in line with being a vegetarian. That's kind of disgusting. Why would I want to eat that? We we, we mm-hmm. get buffeted around by the world in ways which, yes, that kind of causally account for why we do what we do in many instances, but we still can't account for why those causes are effective in one case and not in another, and why we fall off our diet and jump back on it and yes. fall off again in, in precisely those moments we do. It's just, I mean, again, it's Tiger Woods missing a putt and making the other and not being able to account for why, why it, yes. it went that way in that instance. So Yeah, I understand what you're talking about. Well, all I can say is that we have a long way to go before... Most people are convinced that their behavior is determined. Mm. I mean, I think that's the prima facie truth, but, you know, our illusion of agency is is so strong. that. But I think it's an important endeavor. I really do. And I wish that philosophers would turn their attentions to that instead of word games. So. Yeah. Well, listen, Jerry, it's been great to talk to you and uh, just appreciate the time you've taken with me. And I wish you the best of luck with the launch of your book, which... Uh, all of our listeners should read because it lays out this problem, which is not going away, I don't think, any time in our lifetime, and which every generation faces. Just how is it that you form a rational picture of the world, which allows you to find a durable way of collaborating with strangers? And what are the the primary impediments to doing that? And uh, I think you know, you and I both agree that that religious dogmatism is high on the list of things to worry about. There. Yes. Well, uh, thanks for the conversation, and I appreciate your endorsement. Yeah. Well, good luck, and uh, we'll uh, we'll keep it up in in both our trenches. Okay. Take care. Take care, Jerry. If you find this podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you happen to listen to it. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can blog about it or discuss it on your own podcast, or you can support it directly. And you can do this by subscribing through my website at samharris.org. And there you'll find subscriber-only content, which includes my Ask Me Anything episodes. You'll also get access to advanced tickets to my live events, as well as streaming video of some of these events. And you'll also get to hear the bonus questions from many of these interviews. All of these things and more you'll find on my website at samharris.org. Thank you for your support of the show. It's listeners like you that make all of this possible.